Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be discussing kidney stones. We'll be looking at kidney stone prevention and treatment. Perhaps you've had a kidney stone, or you know somebody in your family or a friend who's had a kidney stone. Listen as our guest, Dr. Robert M. Sweet, MDFACS, a professor of urology, surgery, and bioengineering, chief division of healthcare simulation sciences, and the executive director of Wish and Crest at the University of Washington, discusses kidney stones, kidney stone treatment, and prevention. Welcome, Dr. Sweet. Dr. Sweet, thank you for joining us again. You are a repeat performer, so doubly offended. No, <laughs> no, I really uh, thank you for joining us again. If everybody wants to see Dr. Sweet's or hear Dr. Sweet's prior episode, it's uh, from last summer, and you will find it very appealing and interesting. And today we're looking at stones, but before we get started, uh, you're director of Crest and Wish. Do you want to describe what those stand for? Sure. Uh, we like acronyms. The Washington Institute for Simulation Healthcare, formerly WAMI Institute for Simulation Healthcare, it's an acronym within an acronym. We're adjusting that right now. And that is uh, the service center that provides simulation training for all UW medicine. Excellent. And Crest? Crest is a research lab we started back in Minnesota called the Center for Research and Education and Simulation Technologies. And it's a R&D lab that we moved in 2016 to the University of Washington. And we build sort of the next generation simulation systems and we, and we test them as well for training healthcare providers. And we covered that in your prior episode. So, and it's fascinating. So I'd ask listeners, if you haven't heard that, to go find that prior episode and uh, listen. The simulation training is incredible in this day and age, in part to your genius. So thank you. But today we're talking about kidney stones. So you actually founded the Kidney Stone Center at the University of Washington, which is a little different than most urologists' office where somebody comes in with an acute kidney stone or is stone seen on an x-ray. And so Let's go through some basics about stones, and then we'll get back to the uh, difference in the kidney stone center. So kidney stones, people hear about them. They may have had one. They may know somebody who's had one, somebody in the family, a friend, co-worker. 
No, they're very painful, but other people's stones, no, I just have them, but they haven't done anything. So let's talk about the types of stones and not only what they're made of, but the active versus the inactive stones. Yeah, kidney stones definitely are increasing in incidence in the United States and around the world. And so it's a very common disease. It actually now, it's been creeping up probably since you did your training, Rich. It's now up to 11% of the population are going to have a stone. And the incidence every year, about 2.5% incidence of a stone happening. So, um, you know, two and a half people out of 100 are going to have a stone event. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It's every year. It's a lot of people. The reason this is happening is related probably to our our diet. It's a big part of it is why it's increasing in incidence. It's association with things like obesity and diabetes and relationship with hypertension, the called metabolic syndrome. You can put stones into that group of, of diseases and that probably accounts for the increase we're seeing steadily over time. But that isn't the only reason that people make stones. So uh, I remember the uh, ratio of male to female. I think males, you said, were a little higher. Yeah, you know, but 1.2 times a female. So it's a, a little higher chance. Again, that gap's closed, though, with uh, what's going on with metabolic syndrome. It used to be a broader gap, men to women. Now it's closing and it's a little bit closer. It's probably like 12% in men and 9% in women. So yeah, about 1.2 times for a male over a female. And then if Caucasians have a higher incidence than you know, Blacks or Hispanics. And the most common actual type of stone, meaning the material the stone is formed with, the crystals, calcium oxalate still leads the list? does still leave the list. There are a few types of stones that can be made and, you know, not to get into all the chemistry about it, but calcium oxalate is still the most common type of stone. And one of the big contributors to calcium oxalate stone formation was salt ingestion. That's right. Sodium, certainly. And, you know, again, if you look at our diet and what we like to eat, and the recommendations for, for patients, whenever you increase your sodium intake, you're going to wind up with more calcium dumping into the urine. It's sort of a, you know, historically, you know, people hear they have calcium-based stones. What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to stop ingesting foods with calcium. And it's actually the opposite. We encourage a normal calcium diet, and it helps by bonding some of the other things that are dangerous that wind up in your urine, like oxalates in the gut, so that they don't wind up in your urine. And that's why that's important. So really, like you said, trying to limit sodium intake can be helpful to prevent that high level of calcium that winds up in the urine that can be around then deformed stones. And so we'll recommend, you know, less than 2,300 milligrams. So what does that mean? That's one teaspoon a day. It's not a lot. I mean, you know, just French fries or some of that, you're done. I mean, that you've already done your daily dose of sodium. So yeah, we really need to, to watch it, especially if you are a stone former. When we do analysis on stone formers' urines, we oftentimes see that high sodium in the urine is one of the culprits. Yep, no potato chips. 
<laughs> pickled food, you know, like pickles and I mean, there's a lot. I mean, this whenever you go out to eat, I mean, you kind of have to pay attention. And luckily there are apps out there now that allow people to, you know, care more carefully pay attention to to what they're 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 eating. Lots of foods have salt content. So you have to pay attention. Nobody likes to have kidney stones. After the first event, people are very motivated to try to prevent the next event with the calcium oxalate stone. Yeah. I mean, a lot of canned foods that are out there, I mean, look at them. You'd be surprised how high, like luncheon meats, things like that, processed foods. So, I mean, you know, we always talk about a heart healthy diet is a stone or kidney healthy diet for the most part with exception to careful with spinach, but we can go into that later. Yeah. Or, or now we talked about calcium oxalate stones. So we were just talking about the calcium side, the sodium bringing the calcium in, but oxalate is another component. And we know that there are certain foods with high oxalate content, spinach being one. Again, misunderstandings about oxalates. And, and it's really challenging because Patients make calcium oxalate stones. And so what do they do? They go and they're often counseled or they'll go online and say, okay, well, I'm going to avoid oxalate, high oxalate foods. And that isn't always the problem. Okay. It could be from high oxalates in the urine or, or it could be from high calcium in the urine. And low oxalate diet is very difficult to comply with. And so we don't just jump into, okay, automatically calcium oxalate stone, let's do a low oxalate diet. We, we don't do that. We usually want to pinpoint a, a real source. So some foods though that are extremely high are the spinach. Rhubarb's really high. Rice bran is high. Almonds is another big one that has quite a bit a lot of people like, eat a lot of. We hear a lot of those as kind of the big ones. But the concept that all green leafy vegetables are high in oxalate is not true. You know, kale, for example, is pretty low in oxalate and you don't have to worry as much about kale. Alfalfa sprouts are good for you. Mustard greens are fine. Cabbage, broccoli isn't too bad. Six milligrams, kind of borderline, but not too bad. I love romaine lettuce, not a problem. So, I mean, there, there are certain things that green peppers are okay. So green vegetables are okay, but the big one to really avoid is going to be spinach. Yeah. And I remember something about it in the South, the stone belt, hot, humid, dehydrated, drinking black tea and black tea has a fair amount of oxalate. You can drink other kinds of tea, but the black tea was sort of, uh, mm, choose a different one. And chocolate. If you really eat a lot of chocolate, a lot of chocolate. you're going to get some, a lot. But it's not you know, as bad as the other ones as, I mentioned. Right, right. Yeah, no, I was uh, once at a Saturday market and I heard a woman behind me talking to her friend about, oh, I can't get that. My husband has kidney stones. And then I can't get that. I can't get that. And I was going, poor guy, because <laughs> it's like avoiding everything. So yes, there are certain things. And if you're a stone former and you've had one, you can find the uh, usual culprits and try to adjust your diet. What about the next most common stone besides calcium oxalate? Another type of crystal that makes a stone is? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things. You know, calcium combined with phosphate as well. And uh, that's a totally different chemistry and how that relates. And patients that have high calcium in the urine tend to 
they'll make mixed stones where there'll be calcium phosphate in certain pH environment in the urine, and it'll make calcium oxalate. Calcium's there to bind. It'll bind with oxalate and uh, more acidic in urine. So if it's alkaline, it'll be calcium phosphate. If it's acidic, it, the calcium's around to bind with uh, phosphate if it's, it's alkaline. So that's sort of the signs that you're likely going to be looking at a high calcium in the urine is if they have mixed calcium-based stones. Uh, uric acid type stones is another you know, common stone that's out there related to purines and, and a very acidic urine. And so, you know, watching the purine intake, and there's a list of foods for that too. Again, if you go online and you just look at foods to avoid with stones, you're not going to eat anything and you'll never comply. So yeah, it's really important to find out what it is, what's the type of stone and what your urine looks like that might be contributing to that. And so, yeah, watching protein intake. So we'll recommend if you look at someone's weight between 0.8 and 1 milligram per kilogram of a protein a day, that's a nice rule to kind of look at. Try and keep it under that and try to avoid animal proteins. That'll just make you more acidic. So Yeah. And plant-based is a good way to go. Looking at some patients who are recurrent uric acid stone formers, they lack the ability to alkalinize their urine. There's a flux in our bodies of acid urine to alkaline urine. We call it the alkaline tide. It's part of digestion, but they don't do it. So when we get to prevention, uh, we'll go back and look at the uric acid uh, folks because that is a group that we can be fairly successful with as far as manipulating their pH of their urine. Um, what about anything else as far as another stone that comes along and we see occasionally? Yeah, we see in my practice, I see a lot of infectious type stones. And, and that's an interesting scenario. Stones can become infected and then they become a home base for bacteria. And it's a nice place for bacteria to hide even from antibiotics. And so I always encourage if there's patients that have recurrent urinary tract infections with the same organism over and over and over again, despite courses of antibiotics, is to look for stone. Because oftentimes that stone may be harboring those bugs. And any kind of stone can be infected. However, there's a special kind of stone that serves almost, and the analogy I like to do, it's like a beehive. So the bacteria make the stone and the stone is also a home for the bacteria. And the only way to get rid of those bacteria is to remove the beehive, is to remove it with the bacteria. So combination of antibiotics and then removing the stone, usually surgically, and they're called struvite or magnesium ammonium triple phosphate stones. And um, they can be hard to manage because they tend to, to come back, even if there's even a tiny bit of the beehive left, they'll grow back and and, and really, they form very large stones sometimes. And then there's even more rare stones. I mean, you can get medication-type stones that are pretty rare, but there are certain medications in certain patients that can form. And then there's a, a, a genetic type of stone that uh, is very interesting called cysteine. And those stones can sometimes be challenging with certain modalities to treat. But those patients, it's really difficult to to make sure that they're getting their urine pH and milieu such that uh, those cysteine forms don't form. And those tend to run in families. For the infection stones, I was just back at a uh, 
lecture, annual lecture in Boston. And the visiting professor was there and they were showing Stump the Professor, which he wasn't stumped, but <laughs> very good visiting professor. But uh, one of the residents was presenting a case with a person with stones and uh, it had urinary tract infections. And so I said, so what did the post-treatment culture show? And she said, well, we don't routinely do that in my practice. And I, she goes, do you? And I go, yeah, because recurring urinary tract infections come in two types. They come in reinfection, meaning you're sterile, your urine sterilized, your treatment was great. And they come in persistence where you really never resolve the infection and you can't really sterilize those kidney stones. So that's sort of a tip off to go looking for the stone in somebody who continues to have infected urine despite appropriate treatment meaning it's the right antibiotic, they've taken it, good compliance, and their urine never sterilizes. So that was a, a tip-off, and maybe the resident will check a post-treatment culture in that situation. Looking at the opportunity then for people to say, well, do I have stones? Am I at risk? First of all, does a family history play a role in people with stones? Yeah, it can. We estimate it's like 40% have some kind of positive family history of patients have something, you know, but then again, it's hard to discern that because families eat together too. So, and they also develop, you know, some of their habits, even once they leave the home and have their own families, a lot of those habits persist from a dietary standpoint. So it's hard to tell, but there's probably a significant component and they tend to run in families. As I mentioned already, cysteine's the classic one, primary a very, a kind of a rare one, which is a syndrome where there's high oxalate, but it's from a defect in the liver called primary hyperoxaluria that runs in families. The type two type does, does that. Low citrates, another one that can run in families and high calcium in the urine can also run in families. So, so now we're going to kind of evolve into a little bit and looking for stones and the two different types, active versus inactive stones. But say somebody comes in and says, my mom and dad both had stones. My uncle had stones. Can I get an x-ray to know if I have kidney stones? We typically hadn't screened for stones. Where's the balance now? Yeah. If you're a patient and you're concerned about the potential for making stones, we usually will start by having just a general discussion about prevention in general, you know, and, and first of all, I'd want to know what type of stones their family was making. So if they said cysteine, you know, that's a different story, right? Certainly in those patients offering an ultrasound is reasonable, you know, doesn't cause much harm and it's pretty low cost exam. I think that would be a, a reasonable approach for someone like that. Um, if they're com they have no symptoms at all and they're just interested and they want to see if they have stones, I would start with an ultrasound and probably a 24-hour urine test. Now that sounds daunting. Like, oh, do you do I come to the hospital and do I have to sit there for 24 hours, you know, with some kind of a catheter in me or something? No, you don't have to do that. They're very simple these days. It's nice. There's a service called the Litholink, which is in Chicago and Literally, you get a kit in the mail, and then in that, with that very easy instructions to follow, you collect your urine, you put it in an additive, you mix it up, you take a sample, and this is all prepared for you. You drop it in the mail, and that's it. You don't have to drop, go to the lab or anything. You just mail your pee, literally. And then a couple of weeks later, we get the results, and you get the results. And they have very good tracking systems and excellent help with analysis of what they're seeing and they track everything that's going on. So 
great service. We love that service. We've been using it now since we opened in 2016. Yeah, it's a very compact mailer. You just take a little aliquot out of the urine collection and send it, and it's very easily done. So it's not a daunting undertaking for patients to do at home. Mostly it's being home and don't miss every time you avoid or pee. You have to catch everyone. For someone who's just simply saying, you know, I got a family history. I don't have symptoms. I've never had a stone at 24 a year. I would start with just general recommendations to begin with, as long as it's not cysteine, you know, or something like that. So the big three I talk about, low salt diet. We've already talked about that, you know, less than 2,300 milligrams. Try to increase the citrate in their diet. So they can do that in multiple ways. And that's a very common treatment approach for a lot of different stones. We'll talk about taking 1.5 liters of water and putting four ounces of lemon juice in it. That's the cheapest way to go. And then there's some over-the-counter supplements you can do. And there's three that we recommend with the Stone Center. So one are called KSP tabs, one's called Moonstone, one's called Litholite. Depends whether you like flavor or not and the amount of citrate. They're nice, easy packets. You no longer have to do a subscription for it. It's over the counter. You can get it online and it's pretty low cost. And that's one way to supplement the citrate in your diet. If you don't really like lemons and oranges, getting enough of it in your diet to help. So that's the second one. And the third is just simple fluid intake and especially water. And we should be making about two and a half liters of urine a day. And so if we're not making two and a half liters of urine a day, you know, that's a risk factor for having stones form in the collecting system. And especially if you're in a, like you mentioned earlier, a hot environment or you're, you exercise a lot, you really do need to keep your fluid intake pretty high. Now, the question is which fluids, right? There's good and there's bad. Okay, now this is just strictly from a stone standpoint, so don't take it any further. But water, water's good. That's an easy one. Soda, now there's depends on the type of soda. So the dark soda, the dark sodas like colas, not good. They're going to actually increase your risk of stone formation. Good news, beer is probably good, probably protective, as is coffee, actually, probably protective. So there's some good things with beer. I don't recommend it as your primary fluid source, but (laughs) certainly it can prevent stones uh, compared to, let's say, colas or like you mentioned earlier, tea, which is going to increase your risk for stones. At least black tea. At least black tea, yes. I want to just mention, because people always question how much fluid you gave a volume, but we also used to use the color of your urine. Now, if you take vitamins, they artificially color your urine. They'll make it darker yellow. But if your vitamins wear off, I mean, they've been digested and you're just voiding. If your urine's clear and looks like water, that means you're hydrated at least. Yeah, in a normal situation, yes. And like yes. drinking beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you're voiding and your urine's dark, it's either because you've colored it because you're taking a supplement or you're dehydrated and drink more to get your urine looking like water. And then, and also, you know, aim for kind of taking your favorite mug, your favorite glass, your favorite cup, measuring it so you know how much is in it. And then you can figure out how to reach that goal of uh, what was it? 1.5 liter? Two two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half of urine. Yeah. And you know, these days, and it's great because everyone has, they're walking around with 
with their water bottles and they have a lot of them have the gradations and they have even words of encouragement on them that remind them to drink at least two full those um, contents of those fluids. So, I mean, it depends on how active you are, obviously, on the intake side. You're right. We know what it looks like on the output side, but, you know, someone who is in a hot environment and runs every day is going to need more fluid than someone who is sedentary, you know, in a cooler environment and isn't sweating as much. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Looking at the, the color of the urine is helpful. I did want to mention one thing too, because you mentioned vitamins and there is one vitamin we have to be very careful about. People like to mega dose vitamin C. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. You're just going to pee it out. Well, guess what? You know, it also is going to increase the oxalate in your urine as well, because a byproduct of that vitamin C is oxalate. And we talked about oxalate being a problem. So really be careful, especially if you're a stone former, we have a family history of looking at, you know, how much vitamin C are you taking in every day? You know, shouldn't be that thousand percent or whatever it might be because yeah, you'll, you'll make calcium oxalate stones. Right. I'm going to get to people here is talking about stones and going, well, a person I know had stones or when I had stones, it was very painful. How can somebody come to you and have stones that aren't painful? And we'll get to that, but just a piece of information for people who have recurring stones. If they're living on well water, I've had patients who had stones predominate because they have a lot of minerals in their well water. So you can always have your well water analyzed and see if you have a predominance of something in that and what you're taking in. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between an active and an inactive stone, how somebody could have a kidney stone but not know it versus somebody who's passing a stone and probably really knows it. Yeah. One of the things that's amazing is the pain is not correlate with size. So some people will, you know, present to me with a stone as big as the palm of their hand. Like, I never knew it was there. And I'm like, that doesn't really surprise me. And they'll be kind of proud. They'll say, yeah, you know, I had a friend who had this little tiny little grain of rice and he was crying and bent over and I had this huge thing. I don't even feel it. I must have a high pain tolerance. And for those who have had them, they understand like really the reason we have pain with stones isn't the size and it isn't the cutting or the jaggedness of the stone moving down the the urinary tract. It's from obstruction. It is from plugging and inflammation of that stone as it's passing down a very small tube or part of the kidney And it is the pressure behind that stone that causes the pain. If you understand that, then it makes sense that a little grain of rice can get stuck in a small tube a lot easier than a honker that sort of floats around and up in the kidney. And what the kidney will slowly do over time is it protects itself from high pressures by making itself bigger. Bigger space, urine can get around it, keeps the pressures low, you don't feel it. Those huge stones can't fit in the small channel to get down and plug everything up. They're too big. And your kidneys had a long time to accommodate and slowly get bigger, which feels more like a dull ache or occasional discomfort. Some people don't feel it at all versus you go from completely normal one second and five minutes later, there's something completely blocking your entire system over five minutes. Okay, all that stretch and accommodation, all that urine behind it is making it block and the pressures shoot up 
those stretch receptors fire and you're in horrible pain with a tiny grain of rice sized stone. And so that's why, you know, the size doesn't matter and why some stones can cause pain and others, others don't. Yeah. Along that. So first there are stones that are attached to where they're presumably made at the calyx of the kidney. So they're still attached and they aren't even loose. And most people don't appreciate that they have stones there. You would see them on an x-ray, presumably on an ultrasound, a CT, MRI, but... That's a controversial topic for sure. And we don't know. We don't think that those patients that have calyceal stones, they shouldn't have pain from them, but then some do. It's hard to, to explain and understand and you know, and you do see dilation of some, you know, the the distal tubules behind you. If you're in there, you're ureoscopically with a scope and you're looking and you do see some, you know, but does that cause stretch? Probably no, it doesn't. And it does, doesn't cause all that, but you remove them and they feel way better. <laughs> it's just like what, you know, it's hard to explain. We don't have a good explanation. Is there some focal thing going on there? I used to not believe it, but now I've been treating stones for now over a couple of decades, and I'm becoming more of a believer that some of these stones and some of these ones that are stuck to papilla in certain patients tend to cause some some discomfort, not the same level of discomfort that you would with a stone that's dropped into the small tube, the ureter, but some pain. And the ureter is the connecting pipe between the kidney and the bladder, and it tapers and narrows as it gets closer to the bladder. And that's where a lot of stones really get plugged up. They just can't get through that little tunnel into the bladder. And then people are miserable. What are the symptoms and signs of a stone? How would somebody know they're passing a stone? Yeah, I mean, it can be subtle. It can be very, you know, obvious. And, you know, flank pain is the big one. Blood in the urine, you may or may or not have blood in the urine that you can see, but certainly if you go to emergency room because of pain, you don't know what it's from. And a lot of people don't know unless, and it can be mixed up with other things. I mean, people who have had stones think they're having stones, but they have something else and vice versa. You know, someone may have, actually they have back pain and it's just from musculoskeletal back pain, but they've had a history of stones. So they think, oh, it must be a stone. And sometimes it's not. So it can mimic other things, but flank pain, some blood in the urine, a nausea is common, vomiting. As the stone moves down, it can also cause you to feel like you have to pee a lot. So we call urinary frequency and urgency can also be common, especially as the stone's getting to the lower half of the urine near the bladder as it's moving down. And then we worry some cases it can lead to if that stone is infected and you have high pressures, patients can get really sick. So you think the bacteria can wind up in the bloodstream and they get what we call septic and they get hospitalized and those patients can be very, very sick. So fever in those kind of cases. Yeah, that's an emergency. You know, if you have a history of stones and you say, oh, I usually pass them, but you get a fever go to the emergency room. I mean, that's, that's really something that you have to pay attention to. How long can somebody go with a stone that's causing a lot of blockage? You talked about the urine backing up, the kidney dilating, protecting itself. 
But how long before somebody is going to start losing kidney function on that side? And it really depends on whether it's completely blocking the ureter or if there's urine getting around it. I mean, I've seen patients that have had ureteral stones for, you know, you could look back and someone might have missed something and it was there for a year and it's sitting in the ureter and that kidney looks perfectly fine. Why? Because it's not completely blocking the system and urine can get around it. That being said, you don't know and you can't assume, and there can be what we call silent obstruction as well, where there can be kidney damage and the patient doesn't know it because it's been there for a while. And so typically you see a stone and you're going to give it a trial to, to pass on its own. It's a size that's, that's okay. And we might use a medication to help facilitate that passage. And we do have a medication that has some evidence to show that that can help. And we usually give, we'll want to give it, you know, uh, probably no longer than four or five weeks before you probably want to then, if they don't pass it by then, just go ahead and treat it. And the um, diagnosis of kidney stones. So somebody has pain and they're not sure it's a stone or not, but it's pretty bad or they want to find out how typically do we diagnose kidney stones? When you're talking about the differential diagnosis, I mean, you have to make sure it's not something else in the abdomen that's going on. So um, it could be a problem with the colon, like diverticulitis can sometimes appear like or a stone. And that's one thing to rule out. Again, I mentioned musculoskeletal back pain in women, certainly syndromes around the, with the ovary and gynecologic problems can sometimes mimic some similar types of crampy discomfort that you can get UTI. So, I mean, a lot of these things, I mean, even things I've even seen cases of like shingles, <laughs> you know, where you get ridiculous type of discomfort and pain that can mimic it. So, you know, that's usually happens not in the urologist's office. That usually happens in the emergency room or in a primary care physician's office where patients simply first time stone form will show up and say, I have pain. And you know, that's where it's important. That differential diagnosis is thought of and then go through all to find out all the tests that we do in order to sort out what's going on. And it's usually diagnosed with a urinalysis that oftentimes will show even microscopic blood or, and oftentimes there's imaging tests that's done. And the physical exam, of course, can help us distinguish, especially back pain, gynecologic pain from kidney pain. And there's some subtleties there with the physical exam. But yeah, the imaging's key. And then imaging tells us the answer oftentimes when it comes to stones. So people have experienced pain. They've been diagnosed with the stone. Then we usually, there's a urologist involved. Appointment, if they don't have one, is made from the emergency room doctor to the urology office. And then we see patients and how many stones do we have to actually intervene on? And we'll get to what type of interventions are possible versus how many we can look at the patient and say, you know, this has got a high likelihood of going through. We're going to give it some time. Yeah. You know, as a patient, you, know, you, you just want your pain to go away. And then again, you also don't want surgery. So I think that's where, you know, careful discussion and with the urologist to understand what your specific risk factors are. And what is your likelihood of passing that stone versus not passing it and needing surgery? And so it's a little bit of a dance and, you know, you also don't want to be doing tons and tons of imaging. So 
if you are seeing a provider and they're wanting to get a CAT scan to follow a particular stone, you know, and get two or three of them to follow it, not a good idea because, you know, more than two uh, for a particular stone event, radiation is dangerous. You really don't want a lot of CCAT scans and x-rays if you can avoid it. So there, there is, a, it's sort of also, are you a stone former? Because patients who make lots of stones and they have a history of passing stones. I mean, that patient will have longer chance to pass because they have a history of doing it than your, we call virgin stone, never had one before. I mean, they may struggle passing that first one. Um, so it is shared decision-making with the patient in this case and deciding on you know, how to follow these, when to do something about it. And as you mentioned before, fever, that pulls the trigger on doing something a lot sooner and getting that system drained. And or if there's an infection or if there's underlying kidney disease, anything that puts the patient at risk makes the, it more urgent to do something rather than just to let it pass. If I remember looking at the size of a stone, so we have imaging and we can see it because it's got calcium and even a plain x-ray or a CT and they measure it. I think it was five millimeters was a threshold for high likelihood of passage. It goes up. So, I mean, it depends again, also whether you're a frequent stone passer. I mean, I've had patients pass, have trouble passing two millimeter, three millimeter stones and you're sitting there, you're going, you give them time, you give them months and they never pass it. And they're still symptomatic. And then you have patients that can drop a, a one centimeter stone, a 10 millimeter stone, you know? And so you kind of have to take that into, into your decision-making. It's not algorithmic, certainly. But in general, when we talk about likelihood of passing, yes, you know, you should offer for anyone under 10 millimeters an option to, to pass with expulsion therapy. Certainly one of the things we should offer all patients with a ureteral stone, you give them an odds if, if it's an eight millimeter stone, you know, it's probably you know, 25% chance of passing it on their own. And who knows how long that's going to take and how many emergency room visits to get there. You know, you have to weigh all that and, you know, ultimately making a plan with the patient uh, usually works, works well. And if they're going to the emergency room more than twice, you know, it's time time. Now, as we move into, well, what are you going to do to take it out or treat it? First question we usually get is, well, can't you dissolve it? So there is one type of stone that we can answer, well, we can try. Yeah, that's the, as you know, the uric acid stones, you know, when they get really big uric acid stones, I'm hesitant to do that because just little chunks fall off. These stones that are up in the kidney and weren't bothering people. All of a sudden they've dropped now into the ureter and you've created problems. But yes, uric acid loves to crystallize in an acidic environment. And the simple thing to do, as you mentioned earlier, is to make the urine more basic or alkaline. And so that's often done with citrate. We talked about citrate before, and that's a very simple way. Citrate and water, right? Both will help increase the pH of the urine. And those are great ways to prevent uric acid stones and dissolve them. There's some products out there that claim to dissolve stones. It's tricky because they have some citrate in them. They aren't wrong if it's a uric acid stone, <laughs> but most patients make calcium oxalate stones. So, you know, patients, they buy this stuff for only 
calcium oxalate stones. And while it still might help prevent them, it's not going to dissolve that stone. And that's where patients kind of, I think the marketing on some of these things is a little misleading. Yeah. And, you know, alkalization of the urine for uric acid stone formers really does help prevent <clears throat> recurring stones. And it's not that hard to do. So, yep. and it helps with calcium oxalate too, especially if in hyperoxaluria. In the case of hypercal or too much calcium in the urine, they'll just make calcium phosphate stones instead. So, you got to balance that. So, the stone isn't uh, uric acid. We can sometimes tell that on imaging. It appears to be a calcium stone. It's not going to dissolve. It's in the ureter. What do we do? They see me after usually they've been in the emergency room. You know, you've been in the emergency room. The emergency room doctor has told you, you have a six millimeter stone. I'm going to send you to the kidney stone center or to a urologist. Okay. So they come to my office and, you know, you check on their symptoms and see how they're doing. Have they been in the emergency room again? Have they tried the, you know, it sounds like they've been put on a medication to help them pass it. It increases their chances. A alpha blocker, selective oh. alpha blocker. Yep. Tamsulosin or. Okay. Yep. That's what. And so that's, you know, typically given in the emergency room. And so then they see me and we usually can get the, our patients in to see us in the clinic and one of us in the clinic really quickly. And that's how the stone center is set up specifically. And we try to get them in within a few days of the emergency room visit and that by design. And. The way I like to do it is to, again, there's a goal of minimizing lots of scans as well. So we sort of make a decision and say, okay, let's give you three, four weeks. And the patient's fine with that. It's like, if you don't pass it in four weeks, we're going to take it out. We're going to treat it in that scenario. And then we talk about the different options for treating it. And then we tell them, but two or three days before we will get imaging. Because what I don't want to do is take you to the operating room to find nothing. And so, because sometimes the pain can go away and the stone's still there because the system's accommodating it, right? And the inflammation's gone down. And so you're in squeaking by, pain goes away, and that's the way to do it. So I order two or three days before I get imaging, and that allows us to know 100% it's still there. And then they got to strain their ear in between those last three days. So because they pass the stone, then we can cancel surgery. And then we have a waiting list so the other patients can get in sooner. And that's how I manage it. So I'm not doing fall negative surgery where I go up and say, oh, guess what? You passed it. I mean, don't want to do that. But also give them a chance to pass it on their own. And, and if it's there, we'll take care of it. Even if they don't have pain, we'll know it's still there and we'll manage it. And to take the stone out, how are you doing that? Yeah. And so there's really three different ways. And we no longer are doing open surgery for stones. Haven't done it in 25 years. So it's just not something we do. So we can tackle the extremely large complex stones with a little tiny incision about this big, about a centimeter and dilate a little track there and treat the stone that way. If it's really big or if it has complex anatomy, we can break it up from the outside using shockwave uh, and let those pieces then pass on their own. In certain cases, when the stone is in a good place, there's only one of them, it's not too dense, and the distance between the skin and the stone isn't too long. If they meet all those criteria, and then shockwave, I think, is a good option. 
don't love shocking infected stones, but uh, some people do. I don't. I don't think it's a good idea. But the most common way we treat a lot of our stones is going to be with a small straw-like scope. Very, It's, it's uh, flexible oftentimes. Sometimes if it's up higher, we'll need to use a little flexible scope and a little laser. And there's a couple of different types of lasers we use depending on, on things and what type of stone it is and size and location, all kinds of things, but it doesn't really matter so much. Um, we turn the stone into either dust or we crack it into pieces and then extract them with a little basket. And then afterwards we leave the stent in those cases with the ureteroscopic approach or using the scope. Our lab has pioneered as well a new treatment modality for treating stones that's gaining more and more evidence. And that is using simple ultrasound probe to identify the stone and then right there. And then you can just turn it onto a different mode and actually break the stone up into pieces. And uh, this is exciting new way of, of treating them that you can do right in the emergency room or right there in the clinic. And that's going to be certainly for certain stones, it, it, it might be a good option for them. I'll come back to that in a sec. The first modality you talked about is through the back, through a little tiny incision. It's percutaneous. We're going really directly into the kidney, into the reservoir part of the kidney. Not the We go through the meat of the kidney safely, and we gain entrance to where the stone is. We're looking at it directly, and you can break it up and wash the uh, particles out. That's a percutaneous approach. Yep, and we um, have an instrument that break, cracks the stone into... Lots of pieces, and it has vacuum on it as well and sucks all the pieces out. It's very efficient, but it's a little bit more invasive. It's still minimally invasive, and we're talking about a one-centimeter incision, but it's really reserved for really large stones, infected stones, um, challenging anatomy that you can't get to any other way. And you know, in our practice where we do tons of stones we do see a larger percentage of these kind of patients. But so I do a lot of these procedures just the nature of our, you know, being a UW and being what we call a quaternary referral center where we get those kind of cases, but they aren't that common. And out there in the community, they're not as common as your typical ureteral stone. Those are much more common. And the last modality, the ultrasound, is that evolved from the research that was done at the University of Washington with a NASA grant? Because a trip to Mars has a high likelihood of somebody getting a stone? Yeah, NASA supported it, NIH has supported it work. Um, there's been a lot of support and, you know, a company spinoff has happened now. We did the first in human trials now with this device, published on it. Other groups out there in universities and urology groups that are doing trials with this technology, and it continues to evolve at the University of Washington as well, the, the research. Um, and uh, developing the, the probes that not only again see the stone with ultrasound, but then treat it right there, point of care treatment right at the time when patients present. To me, that's the most exciting. The space thing's cool, and eventually we'll get there. If we're, you know, would we go to space? But you know, if you're a patient and you're sitting in the emergency room, you got your pain under control. You want that stone just taken care of right there. You know, not have to wait, see a urologist and then, you know, do a trial to pass and then have surgery. I mean, if you can have it done right there in the emergency room, that's fantastic. Well, 
go into your idea when you came back to the U from Minnesota with the idea of developing a stone center. A little bit different than emergency room sends the stone patient, the urologist, urologist treats, goes through some basic stone prevention. What's different in the stone center? Yeah, the vision for this really was around taking advantage of multidisciplinary approach to a disease. And much like with cancer, is really a good example of a successful model where surgeons and oncologists and nutritionists and internal medicine doctors are working together for that patient as a team for that disease. And with stones being, we talked about earlier, having multiple factors creating or creating the situation where a patient's going to make more of them. We put together this concept of combining surgeons with dietitians and nephrologists or the medical uh, kidney doctors and making it so that it's a multidisciplinary approach. We can do you know research trials at the center and we have uh, expertise with you know specialty training and how to surgically treat these stones, for example. And it becomes a center of excellence around that. And then with the nature of stones being the type of disease that when you're evaluating them, the images make so are so helpful in our decision making. It has made it very easy to see and help patients from far away. And telemedicine works really well in our with our disease because of the fact how important imaging is. We already know they have a stone and a lot of it is decision-making and discussion and it doesn't rely as much on the physical exam as some other urologic conditions or other medical conditions do. So we've really taken advantage of that and we've been able to you know, take care of patients all over the country in that way once they're established with us. That's wonderful. Such a great idea. And the Integrated Stone Center is a one-stop shopping for people with stone disease. The other thing is important for our community here in the Pacific Northwest, because we were the first stone center with you know multidisciplinary approach like this in the Pacific Northwest. You know, the first concern is is that a threat to our colleagues in urology? And the answer is no. I think we've been an asset for them because they still are managing stones. And that's a big part of their practice. And they continue to do that. And we just support them. You know, if it's a scenario where it's too much for them to handle, it's too complex. I mean, we're there for them. There isn't, they aren't stuck saying, oh my God, I don't know what to do with this patient. I can't do anymore for them. It's nice, I think, to have a center of excellence that can be there to support those patients and and support those physicians and urologists that are, are you know taking care of all the other urologic conditions that we have the luxury of not having to treat because we're so focused on stones. It's just a resource for the community. Well, as we're approaching our time here to wrap up, any recommendations that we can leave listeners with as far as resources, websites, or do you have information that you give to patients that you want to pass on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you are a patient or you know someone with with stones and are actively having stones, certainly uh, seeing your urologist is a, a good idea. And I'm sure you've already thought of that. 
And certainly, if you're just curious and you have a family history of, of stones, we talked about that a little bit, but doing kind of a prevention assessment and getting some general information, certainly you can reach out to us at the Kidney Stone Center. We're up at Northwest Hospital, UW System. We're in the McMurray Building of Suite 300, and we're happy to see you and or just reach out to us. If you're interested in the research trials we have going on with the ultrasound or any other things we have going on, certainly can look at our uh, our website. We we're happy to to see anyone. They have a either a diagnosis of stones in the past, or you have an active stone now. Or we're happy to be there for those patients. So, any resources online that you send patients to? You know, we have our own resources that we will provide patients on our website. I would caution patients if you have a stone and you're new to this whole thing. I wouldn't just go online because you're going to get extremely confused. There are so many recommendations and it really depends on what type of stone you're making. And if you follow all the diet, again, we talked about this, but all the dietary recommendations, you will really have trouble figuring out what to, to eat or drink. It's, it's a lot to look at. And so you're being strategic about it, certainly the big three, you know, the water, the citrate, and the salt. And then then very next in line after that is a kind of watching the animal protein intake. We talked a little bit about that. If you can do those things in general, you'll be right most of the time, but not all the time. Well, I just... I'm always in awe of your fund of knowledge, and it's always great listening to you. Listeners, if you haven't had a chance to listen to Dr. Sweet on simulation technology, please find that episode. It's fascinating. And as usual, it's fascinating to hear you talk about kidney stones. So thank you. Oh, enjoyed the, the conversation. Thanks, Rich. Join us next month when we review longevity with the renowned expert, Dr. Matt Caberline. Join us next month when we review longevity with the renowned expert, Dr. Matt Caberline. Have you wondered about longevity? Have you wondered why some people seem to do better as they age and others don't? What about healthy aging? Not only living longer, but living better. Certainly, we've all pondered the consequences of advanced age. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at the original guide to men's health.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.